I said, I'm taking you to the hospital, and I, I said it was a certain amount of authority, and he didn't argue. Even if he had argued, I would have said, well, I'm taking you anyway, and then you can fire me. I didn't tell him I thought he was hurt bad. Former Secret Service agent Jerry Parr. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Forty years ago this week, a would-be assassin put a bullet in Ronald Reagan. The man whose quick thinking likely saved President Reagan's life was Jerry Parr, a member of Mr. Reagan's Secret Service detail that day outside the Washington Hilton Hotel. Before anyone realized that one of John Hinckley Jr.'s bullets had indeed hit the president, Jerry Parr recognized that something was seriously wrong and ordered the president's driver to head straight to the hospital. And they got there just in time. Mr. Reagan collapsed inside the front door of the hospital and was rushed into surgery. I met Jerry Parr in 2013. He and his wife Carolyn had written a book about not just that day, but their lives before and after the assassination attempt. And as you're about to hear, Carolyn Parr made what I guess Hollywood would call a cameo appearance outside the Washington Hilton that day at the scene of the shooting. So, here now, from 2013, Jerry Parr. You have certainly had a role in shaping our history. It occurred to me about two or three years after the event that I did this group. I mean, I didn't think about it at the time. You know, I was, I was focused on every day doing the best I could to try to keep the president alive. And so in doing that, I sort of forgot other parts of of my life, even though I had, you know, saved his life. And actually, uh, when I think about it, it was more than me. It was the doctors at the hospital uh, the driver of the car who got, took me to the hospital and, and all these kind of things. So, Well, you have a very nice letter, which you've reprinted in this book, at the end of the book, yes. that you wrote to the other members of the detail that day, crediting each one of them by name with what specifically they had done that helped save President Reagan's life. Well, I knew it was going to be an historical event, and not just for the Secret Service, but for them and the fact that they were there, and I wanted to make sure that they were... were, were uh, written about, exposed, you might say. No, not, not one of them objected to it. I mean, they all liked the idea of, of what I said. Now, here's something else I hadn't known before. Carolyn, you were actually at the scene that day as well. Yes, I was. It happened right across the street from my office at the time. And, uh, but I wasn't in my office. I was down on the sidewalk because Jerry had told me he was going to be there, and I thought maybe I could get a glimpse of the president who I hadn't met yet. Uh, so that was uh, that was uh, very scary when I heard the shots and saw three bodies lying on the sidewalk. Uh, I went, I had actually had out of body experience, I th- guess you would call it, because I heard this woman screaming and then I realized it was me. And I clapped my hand, my hand over my mouth because I didn't want to distract anybody from what they were doing but i couldn't stop the noise the car left within three seconds uh and it took me that long to run across the street well after the car sped off i saw the bodies and i ran over to see if jerry was one of them um and when a when a agent who i didn't know though uh held an uzi and told me to get back i decided i would that was a little discouraging (laughs) 
I actually then said to him, I'm Jerry Parr's wife. Where is he? And he said, in the car with the man. Jerry didn't call me till 6 o'clock that night after he got out of surgery. Well, very famously, we've heard all these years how the president said, Jerry, you broke my rib. I mean, he must have, obviously, at that point, in those first few seconds, nobody knew exactly what had happened. No, the only thing I saw, uh, I looked up, uh, he, well, I was, uh, he was sitting in the, uh, as I'm sitting here, he was sitting in the right rear seat and up on the edge of it. He never did sit back. And I was kneeling in front of him, and this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a large limousine with uh, jump seats pinned up against the back of the front seat, and so I had plenty of room. So I was kneeling there, sort of one le- one knee down and one leg up. And uh, what I had done when, when we when we moved away from the from the uh, site where the shooting was, there at the hotel, I saw these uh, three bodies on the, s- the sidewalk. Three people. You know, McCarthy, I think, was one of them, and Delahanty, and maybe somebody else. And uh, so I knew there had been a shooting. And then I noticed the bullet hole in the window, in the window to, uh, to my left then. It was actually the right window. But the armor that was about three inches thick, uh, this glass, this protective glass. So it only dimpled it on the outside. So I could see that. And then I decided, well, I think we had made it because he, he wasn't complaining about anything. And I was kneeling in front of him, and then I ran, ran my hands up along his, uh, his around his belt. From the belt line up, I thought if he was going to be hit, that's where he's going to be, is from his belt line up, because that's when we came in like that. And uh, he, he didn't say anything. He did take a handkerchief out of his mouth, and he dabbed his uh, lips with it. And he said, I think I've cut the inside of my mouth. And uh, I looked at it. And it became more profuse. He started spitting up, and uh, more than just from a cut lip. Yeah, more than yeah. I, I felt that it was uh, more than that, but I didn't know for sure. Your Secret Service training was such that everything you can't stop for, even for a second and think about it. It has to be instinctive. You have to know and just. And you made the instinctive decision to direct the limousine a certain way to the hospital as right. opposed to the White House. That's those seconds saved his life. That's true. Now that now that we all know what uh, what the uh, nature of the injury was, but it was not only that he was uh, he was pale and his one of his, his lips were uh, turning blue, and so even though he said and, and when I told him I said I'm taking you to the hospital, he didn't complain. I thought maybe he might complain or saying you know it's sort of it's if when you take a president to the hospital the stock market does goes crazy, uh, the the Russians uh, you know they go on full alert and. And they don't really know what's going on. So any time something like happens, like that happens to a president, it has enormous implications outside the limousine. And uh, I was thinking of all that stuff. It came to my mind as we were we we made that run from oh I guess down Connecticut Avenue, and we made a right turn I believe on Pennsylvania Avenue. When I told him, I said I'm taking you to the hospital, and I, I said it was a certain amount of authority and. He didn't argue. Even if he had argued, I would have said, well, I'm taking you anyway, and then you can fire me if you want to. But uh, I, I I didn't tell him I thought he was hurt bad, but he he could tell uh, by by the breathing, uh, by the weakness, that something was wrong with him. And I thought we'd been hit, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe a ricochet or something. That's exactly what he hit. What I find fascinating about your book is that as you – Telling the early years, 1962, you're sitting with across from the Secret Service recruiter, 
and he's telling you, you know, if you're in the kill zone around the protectee, you might have to take that bullet. Exactly and, that was sealed, and that was sealed the deal for you. And, and, here, and here you are almost 30 years later being in almost exactly that situation. This is true. Yeah. Let's, let's put the also fascinating part about the book about your experience as a lineman and all the times you could have died in that line of duty as well. But that's Yeah, I guess I chose uh, risky jobs. Do you have any regrets, though, about the fact that your long and very illustrious Secret Service career will be marked and remembered by one afternoon? Well, yes, it, it's true. But actually, that's why you're there. That's why every agent that's on protection or in the Secret Service, uh, I think they, they, they look at me and say, uh, this is what we do. This is what we have to do to save a president's life is we have to cover and evacuate. That's the, that's the watchword that we learn to you know, sort of uh, bring it into our spirit. Or, or Every time we're working them, be ready to cover and evacuate. Never, never get them in position where you, where you cannot cover them first and evacuate them quickly. And that, that's, that, that the moment that happens, I, I grab him and start pushing him down, head down, so, he, so your head won't hit the car, and right into that car and right on top of him. And Ray Shattuck through my uh, feet in and my feet and the president's feet, and we, he slammed the door, and he didn't even get in the right front. So there was nobody in the right front. There's just a driver, me and the president. That was it. But the thing to do is to get out of there. Get out of there. Can you imagine the size of secret service agents we'll need if Chris Christie becomes president? My goodness. I don't, we'll need some weightlifter types to lift him up. <laughs> this is true. He's a very heavy guy. I mean, I bet he weighs 300 pounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They would have to make some, uh, I call it a creative adjustment. Do you think there would be any, and I don't, I don't want to go too far afield here, but do you think there would be some re-education necessary if Hillary Clinton or another woman becomes president because if she's standing outside the hotel, shots are fired, and an agent has to shove her in, I mean, you're a big guy. You're, you could do her some physical harm just trying to get her out of harm's way. I, I've thought about that, and we've, we've even talked about it. But we have, uh, we have a female agents that uh, we would probably, if, we had a, if, we had, if it was a woman president, we'd probably use more female agents because they can go into restrooms I mean, we, we probably could go in a restroom if we had to, to you know, even a male could do it. I've done it just to make sure who was in there. Mm-hmm. And they, they get, sometimes they get sort of excited. And I said, well, we're, gonna, we're trying to get all the women out of here so we can let her come in here and there's nobody in here with, with her. So, and that's what I just tell them. I mean, just be frank with them. So that's how I handle that. But it's true that uh, there are just a whole lot of situations where you – where, where being a woman is, is different than, than being a man. He always liked to protect things. He protected his mother when he was young. Um, he slept with a knife under his pillow, which you have to read the book to find out why. Um, and he was, even his line work, he saw as a way of bringing light to dark places as a kind of helping others because they'd go out in terrible weather when they knew that the power had to stay on in hospitals and places like that. Um and uh, sacrifice themselves for that. And and then he, in the service, he always was concerned about the men that were working with him. It was men then, not men and women. All the women came in a little bit later. And um, he, he tried to balance the mission with the human people. He could always understand people's pain around things, which 
was unusual in the Secret Service in those days. It was a very macho organization, and, you know, you keep a stiff upper lip and you never complain. And and, uh, Jerry could, because of his own experience, I guess, he could recognize pain in somebody, and he just instinctively knew how to comfort them and what to say and how to listen. And uh, so I think one of the reasons he wanted to be a pastoral counselor was because he was already using these skills so much, and he wanted to know how to do it better. But he felt this was kind of a calling. And then he actually became pastor of a church for 12 years, a small church. And he still is the one people call when their wife is dying or when they've been diagnosed with something. I mean, two or three times a week, he's on the phone with people he's known from around over the years, from around the country, doing that kind of listening. So his life, it's not been an, an odd thing if you look at it that way. Jerry Parr died just two years after our interview. He was 85. And you can find easy Amazon links to Jerry and Carolyn Parr's book at our website, heardeverything.com. Are you new to Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything with the start of the Major League Baseball season, we'll revisit my 1990 interview with one of baseball's greatest pitchers of all time, Bob Feller. Ninth inning, I walked Luke Appling, pitched a taft right, hit a hard hit ground ball to the left of the second baseman, Ray Mack, who knocked it down, grabbed it barehanded, and fired the first final out. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.